Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34. Greetings, H.B. Gary. Your recent claims of infiltrating Anonymous amuse us, and so do your attempts at using Anonymous as a means to garner press attention for yourself. How's this for attention? You brought this upon yourself. You've tried to bite at the Anonymous hand, and now the Anonymous hand is bitch-slapping you in the face. You expected a counterattack in the form of a verbal brawl, but now you've received the full fury of Anonymous. We award you no points. What you seem to have failed to realize is that, just because you have the title and general appearance of a security company, you're nothing compared to Anonymous. You have little to no security knowledge. Your business thrives off charging ridiculous prices for simple things like NMAPs, and you don't deserve praise or even recognition as security experts. And now you turn to Anonymous for fame and attention. You're a pathetic battering of media boring money-grabbing sycophants who want to reel in business for your equally pathetic company. Let us teach you a lesson you'll never forget, you don't mess with Anonymous. You especially don't mess with Anonymous simply because you want to jump on a trend for public attention, which Aaron Barr admitted to in an email. You've clearly overlooked something very obvious here, we are everyone and we are no one. If you swing a sword of malice into Anonymous innards, we will simply engulf it. You cannot break us, you cannot harm us, even though you have clearly tried. Back in this country tonight, NBC News has been given an exclusive look inside the secretive organization known as Anonymous, a loose-knit group of computer hackers who came to the defense of WikiLeaks and got the attention of law enforcement in the process. They are young and stealthy, and they are potential giant killers who are promising a new wave of cyber attacks. Our national investigative correspondent, Michael Isikoff, with us from our D.C. newsroom tonight with more on this. Michael, good evening. Brian, the hacker group known as Anonymous has spooked major U.S. corporations, and the Pentagon is now singling out Anonymous as an example of the serious new cyber threats facing the country. Barrett Brown is an underground commander in a new kind of warfare. It's a guerrilla cyber war, you might call it, you know, if you want to use the term cyber war. 29 years old, a cocky college dropout, Brown calls himself a senior strategist for Anonymous, a loose collection of rogue, tech-savvy hackers credited with bringing down the websites of MasterCard and Visa last December. Retaliation, they say, for cutting off service to WikiLeaks. But it, we just sent a message, basically, just saying that, look, you know, we don't appreciate you working with the feds. The feds, the FBI, is now investigating Anonymous for those attacks, raiding homes and issuing dozens of subpoenas. Investigative journalist Barrett Brown spent four years in prison on charges related to the hacking of private security firm H.B. Gary Federal and national security firm Stratfor. At one point, he was being charged for offenses that would have totaled 105 years in prison. Barrett wasn't involved with the Stratford hack itself. He was being targeted, rather, for sourcing, analyzing, and reading the documents. He further crowdsourced them through his group, Project PM. While serving his prison term, Barrett Brown won the National Magazine Award in 2016 for his column that appeared in The Intercept. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a brief discussion on who H.B. Gary is and who Anonymous is. I think uh, in order for our listeners to really understand the uh, trials that you have endured, that they need to have a basic understanding of these two groups. 
Yeah, so uh, I got involved with Anonymous in very early 2011, uh, very beginning of 2011, which was when uh, some of the participants that worked out of a uh, internet relay chat server called Anonops had gotten involved in the very nascent uh, Arab Spring, the, uh, in this case, the Tunisian Revolution, which had sort of begun in the streets uh, in the last prior weeks. Uh, I was very interested in using these uh, online activist methods uh, to uh, support democratic movements, uh, you know, domestic, you know, grassroots democratic movements around the world. And so I was invited in to participate in that. Uh, about a month later, uh, while we were uh, working on these things, and after the Tunisian government had uh, indeed uh, been overthrown uh, and yeah. replaced by official democratic uh, government, uh, we were still working on uh, with Egyptians and others uh, on the next rounds of this when suddenly we, we found that a uh, former uh, U.S. Air Force intelligence uh yeah, uh, a federal contractor named Aaron Barr, who was CEO of HP Gary Federal uh, itself, a subsidiary, fully owned subsidiary of HP Gary, had gone to the Financial Times. In fact, he had gone to uh, Joseph Min, a very naive journalist over there, and told them that he had uh, infiltrated our uh, internet relay chat server, which was not secret. In fact, we had a, a press room there. There was journalists in and out of that server all the time. Right. But he had infiltrated it in order to identify... Uh, the leadership of Anonymous. And the article by Joseph Min goes into how he had identified our lieutenants and the, the founder of Anonymous, a guy named Q. Stuff that was uh, not just false, but uh, clearly false to people with even a passing knowledge of these kind of matters back then in 2011. Uh, mm-hmm. Anonymous was never founded, for instance. Anyway, so uh, we wrote my, uh, my, I and uh, Jake Davis, known back then as Topiary, wrote up that little press release making fun of him. And then the next day, anonymous attackers uh, went into his servers and uh, took his notes uh, regarding his alleged research on anonymous participants that he was going to give the FBI, uh, took all of his emails uh, between that company, HP Gary, uh, their fellow uh, contracting firms and the FBI, uh, NSA and other uh, intelligence assets, uh, took those, dumped them online and we started going through them. Right. Uh, and I sent along those some to the uh, the press. I tried, I tried to get the New York Times interested. Uh, they they weren't. Uh, mm-hmm. But bottom line is, the next 48 hours, a uh, number of things were discovered uh, involving uh, what else H.P. Gary had been doing, uh, aside from looking at Anonymous. And one of those things was the Team Themis uh, conspiracy. Right. Consortium of firms. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, is, this is very key to this. Uh, so it turned out H.P. Gary and Palantir and a very secretive firm called Ingame Systems, right. uh, along with Barrico, which, which we'll get back to in a second, these firms had gotten together to provide a private uh, sort of uh, boutique uh, black ops uh, operational sophistication to private firms uh, here in the U.S. and elsewhere. And the DOJ had, in fact, assisted them in finding clients. So Bank of America, uh, which back then was very nervous about statements that uh, WikiLeaks was putting out about having obtained files showing criminal wrongdoing by a U.S. bank, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they had heard that and said, oh, shit, we're, we're a U.S. bank and we, we engage in criminal wrongdoing. That must be us. Right. And so they had hired uh, they, they, or they were looking to hire uh, Team Themis, these, these companies, to go after WikiLeaks, to go after uh, journalists supportive of WikiLeaks, including Glenn Greenwald, who's mentioned right. by name in these in these proposals they'd written up. Uh, intimidate them, uh, discredit them. Uh, In the documentary, We Are Legion, the director spoke to former HB Gary CEO Aaron Barr about these plans. It seems like you're trying to attack a journalist here. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't want to talk too much more about Glenn Greenwald, but other than, you know, what I previously said is, you know, there was never an intent to attack uh, uh, journalists. Um, 
not on my part. You know, I, you know, nor I guess I should say gen, I should generalize that and to say that you know I I would never just outwardly attack a journalist other than if I felt that there was a journalist in my mind that was acting uh, unethically that you know that is um, a, a that's a um, fair game for having a public discussion about them. Uh, separately, they were also to go after uh, the enemies of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, including mm -hmm. Code Pink, Stop the Chamber, various very, very vanilla, very mainstream uh, activist organizations that were simply, you know, opposing the chamber's policies. Right. They were going to uh, engage in an array of uh, hacking attacks, uh, disinformation attacks, releasing false documents to these groups using uh, using fake personas that they would infiltrate. Uh, these groups with, and then uh, when those groups release these supposedly leaked files, they would point to them as fraudulent. Uh, basically, the kind of same kind of things we end up seeing later in different contexts. Uh, mm -hmm. So these things all came out. It was a big media storm over it. H uh, Aaron Barr had to resign from HBK Federal, which dissolved thereafter. Uh, Palantir managed to escape largely. I know one of its uh, main engineers, uh, Matthew Steckman, mm -hmm. uh, was heavily involved in those discussions about you know going after Glenn Greenwald. Right. into the children of uh, labor leaders uh you know and, and they you know they they managed to satisfy the new york times and, and sort of outlets on that kind of level by saying oh you know first they said oh we had nothing we had no involvement in this and then oops here's some documents showing palantir's logo on the uh, on those very documents and then oh well it was just this one employee he didn't have permission we're very upset about this we're putting him on leave and then a few months later after after all the press starts starts paying attention uh, they promote that employee they mm -hmm. put on leave, Matthew Steckman. And he's now, he was thereafter, uh, Washington DC Bureau, uh, sort of, uh, head of, uh, business and government development. And now he's with Andurl, another firm, uh, right. which like Palantir is named after some. Right. So it, it was not a happy ending, uh, in the sense that there, even in this very bizarre situation where we came across these indefensible conspiracies against democracy, mm -hmm. uh, no one suffered for this except for myself and my mother. Uh, we were later raided about a year later. Uh, the, the search warrants, which Michael Hastings posted uh, around that time in March 2012, listed HB Gary, listed in-game systems, uh, listed Project PM, my, uh, my collaborative uh, research outfit, and Echelon2.org, which was where we kept our uh, presented our research for others, particularly for journalists. Uh, all these things were listed on my search warrant. And then sometime after that, uh, after they had threatened my mom with indictments, uh, you know, threatened this FBI agent back, uh, to investigate him using the same methods Aaron Barr was using against labor leaders, et cetera, and see if right. they would be as legal as when I did them as when he did it. And it turns out, no, they were not. Me. Uh, so I, I, uh, ended up facing 105 years in prison. Uh, one of the charges that was very, was really significant was, uh, copying and pasting a link that had been posted uh, to an anonymous chat room after the Stratfor hack leading to files taken from Stratfor. Uh, I had pasted that link to my Project PM uh, chat room full of researchers, uh, you know, in the course of what I've been doing last year, which had been, you know, going over these uh, files to uh, find and write about illicit activity, you know, in The Guardian and other things I wrote for. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I was charged with, the reg charges, and then eventually I pled to uh, calling up Stratfor after the hack of Stratfor and uh, offering to redact sensitive information in those leaked materials. So right. that's what I got my exposure after the check for. So it's, it's obviously, it's a long convoluted story, <laughs> but that kind of gives you the, uh, that gives you the basics. Right. So just for clarification, Barrett, my understanding is that Stratfor is a separate set of leaks from the HB Gehring one. Yes. Is that correct? Okay, Absolutely. that is correct. 
So now Stratfor is also a private security company. And my understanding is that there there's a relationship we, between them and Endgame Systems. Is that correct? Uh, not that I know of. That okay. was uh, Endgame Systems, as far as we could tell, it was working with H.B. Uh, Gary on this thing. But mostly oh, it was okay. working with the NSA, uh, right. with uh, General Petraeus. Mm-hmm. And what and it turns out with Endgame Systems, uh, which had some emails in there I came across that were really uh, helpful in so much as that they they're like oh we, we must never we, we must never let our name get out because we're doing all these secret things and so I just forwarded those emails to uh, Bloomberg Business Week and they did a great story a few months later right. uh, demonstrating showing what it was that Ingame had been doing for the most part and what it was doing was uh, finding uh, vulnerabilities in infrastructure including mm-hmm. airports in France uh, making those vulnerabilities available to unknown clients. Mm. A really bizarre situation. And uh, when that Bloomberg Business Week article came out, they said, oh, we won't do that anymore. And they're still around doing the same thing. Uh, so it just goes to show that there's very little we can do uh, short mm-hmm. of actual direct punishment of those involved to prevent these things from occurring over and over again. And that's that's not just important because of the things that we originally found back then. It's not just important because journalists are being targeted because, you know, journalists are being you know caught up in this like myself. Uh, It's important because some of the same firms that I was investigating from these emails, the HB Gary emails, uh, including Archimedes, uh, TASC, HB Gary federal Mm -hmm. uh, were involved in something called Ramos coin, which was the predecessor for a entirely different, uh, but, but very similar data mining and surveillance and propaganda. Uh, apparatus that was later used in a 2016 election. Calling uh, Chris Clare, TISC, May 13th. Hello? Is Mr. Clare? Hi, uh, Chris. My name is Barrett Brown. I'm uh, writing an article for Al Jazeera on the intelligence contracting industry. And I'm looking through some of these emails between you and Aaron Barr uh, earlier this year regarding a counterintelligence program, Coin Romas. I wanted to ask you if you'd be willing to talk to me about what that is. So I'm writing an article for Al Jazeera, actually two articles. One's on persona management and the other is on uh, surveil- mass surveillance uh, you know, methods and, and contracts with the federal government for surveillance. I understand that you guys were uh, looking to form a team by which to compete with Northrop Gunman, Grumman and uh, one of their partners on some contracts and that they had replaced their existing uh, capabilities with something called Odyssey. Uh, are you familiar with Odyssey? And uh, basically what I'm looking at is, is you, you and John Lovegrove uh, were talking to, I guess, a contact at uh, someone contract side, Doug Kay. Um, and, and John said that uh, coin has been replaced by a procurement called Odyssey. Uh, do you have any idea what, what, I mean, obviously you guys were working on coin, uh, coin Romas for a while with, with HP Gary. Uh, can you describe for me what that is exactly? Is it a, is it a, uh, is it a method of surveillance? Does it involve social networking or anything of that sort? Um, that's, 
Okay. So, but you were trying to go after a contract that was being, I guess, at that point held by uh, Northrop Grumman? Um, I can't verify that at all. Okay. Uh, uh, did, I guess you guys never, I guess you guys broke off the idea of, of setting up, I'm not sure if you were involved in these conversations, but, uh, John Lovegrove and a few others at TISC were, were talking to, uh, Aaron Barr about, about perhaps setting him up on another company, uh, you know, under TISC for the purpose of counter intel. I'm assuming that, that never went through after the whole incident in February. Nothing ever came of that? Nothing ever, nothing ever came of it. You know, if Mantech ever, I understand that Mantech was also in discussions with Barr, and that, you know, he was, he was kind of looking at both TISC and Mantech as either, either, you know, taking HB Gary Federal under your, one of your wings or starting a new company called Magpie. I guess, do you have any idea if, if Mantech also sort of changed uh, their mind yeah, on that? I have no idea. Okay. All right, right. Well, uh, so I guess you, there's nothing you can tell me about Coin Romos or anything like that. Uh, is there anything you can tell me at all about about sort of the the work that you were doing with uh, Aaron Barr and uh, Mantech and uh, Apple? My understanding is that Aaron Barr had conversations with Apple. I, I'm not sure, I can't remember who exactly. I got my notes somewhere, uh, and that he was discussing that his plan was was going to involve uh, the game company Zynga and perhaps using a a you know one of these social networking firms by which to run a sort of you know data collection you know data modeling apparatus. Do you know anything about that, or is that between him and Lovegrove? No, that's something that uh, that's something that he might have gone after. Okay. All right. So, there's nothing else you can tell me in general about any of this, I suppose. It's all under self proprietary uh, and. No, 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 really, no. I, I, I. All right. Well, my let me give you my email just in case. If there's anything you can get in touch with me with, with about, uh, my email is b a r r i t i c u s at gmail. Or you can call me back at this number if you'd like. It's a B A R R I T I C U S at gmail.com. And you can always call me back at this number if uh, if you happen to think of anything that you're you're able to tell me of this other situation. Okay. Well it's it's eleven thirty here at night. You can imagine I was I was sleeping when you called me. I'm sorry, I thought you were in California as well. I was sorry about that. Uh, well, I appreciate you talking to me. Uh, just let me know. I, I guess, let me know if there's anything you can uh, tell me about regarding any of this. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Bye. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about that for a second? Yeah. Uh, I spoke about that first in 2011. I came across, uh, I spent about a month going through these emails uh, yeah. from the HB Gary set. There were about 75,000 emails. And as I said, the press... At first, looked into them. They found that the low-hanging fruits. They wrote right. about that for a while, and they moved on as usual. Uh, my project PM group was, was set up uh, at that point, sort of uh, refocused uh, towards uh, continuing to go off those emails to document what else was in there, to document the other other programs and the companies and the individual executives, blah blah. Uh, and so, in the course of doing that, I wrote an article for the Guardian and put up a long report on uh, the project PM's uh, website about this Romos coin thing. Now, this is a a, a very sophisticated, very complex program uh, that was already uh, in play. It, it was being overseen by some unknown portion of the U.S. government by Northrop Grumman. And I think a partner on that was SAIC. I can't remember. Uh, right. and, and so the emails we're going through here, it, 
you know, Aaron Bott, the same guy who was later digging into people's children and uh, plotting these hacking attacks and going after journalists. Uh, him and TASC, a much, a much larger, more established intelligence firm, yeah. as well as Archimedes, which we'll come up again in a second. Uh, one of these, another firm that was entirely unknown and, and still remains largely unknown, unfortunately. And it's them for a year trying to win the contract when it comes up for recompete to oversee this Romos coin project. Mm-hmm. Now, Romos coin involves a whole range of different aspects. It involves natural language processing. It involves cell phone games. There's a whole list of, of the companies and the procedures involved that, I, that, that you can find if anyone Google, Google's Romos uh, backward slash coin. Right. Uh, it, it, was, it was very sophisticated. It, it involved a data mining component. It involved a surveillance component. And it involved a propaganda or output component, some, some way of laundering information, making it seem to come from uh, something other than the U.S. military. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was directed at the Arab world in this case. And uh, that's about, you know, between that and a few other little things here and there, that we weren't able to figure out exactly what it was, but you know, I presented what I what I could back then, and uh, you know, just explained this is something that is going to there's going to be some splashback here. These same kind of things are, are going to be, regardless of who they're being directed at now, probably the Arab right. world, uh, they will be redirected at the U.S. citizenry, uh, and it's going to be a major big impact. So when I wrote that and published it, it didn't get much attention, uh, and I, I passed it on to Glenn Greenwald. Um, who I've been corresponding with on and off for that last year, uh, ever since the Team Themis thing, because as you'll remember, uh, again, Riemel was one of the people that we kind of uh, saved their asses uh, from being uh, pursued by this very these people. Right. Uh, and back then, Greenwald had been kind of attentive, very interested in these. He had replied and you know said, you know, I'm very interested in all this, blah blah. Uh, but he gradually lost interest, and so when I sent him this Romas coin stuff, uh, he didn't really pay attention. Hmm. And uh, more recently, uh, well, I should actually go on and say, you know, the next, the first time by the FBI uh, in March 2012, about a month later, I wrote another piece for The Guardian. Uh, this once again laying out what had happened to Greenwald, right. what it was Team Themis was doing, and laying out persona management, this other apparatus, and Romos coin, blah, blah. Sent that along to him. And I told him, uh, these are emails I made public recently after seven years because I've just grown so tired of the man. But, uh, uh, <laughs> I told him, look, you know, here's persona management in particular. This is a capability that is very dangerous. These false, you know, these fake online people for manipulation yeah. and for printing events. And uh, I'm going to have a difficult time haranguing people about this from prison. So please uh, bring us, make this public. Right. And that, that never got a reply to that. Hmm. And then I go to prison uh, a few months later. I get out. And uh, between, between those two times, I'm now writing for the Intercept from prison, still mentioning these same programs, uh, and to, to no avail. And so when I get out, it I learn uh, some of these same firms in, in Romas Coin that I had warned Grimald about and warned others about uh, had popped up again, this time with Cambridge Analytica. Mm-hmm. Uh, Palantir was once again involved. And that these were the firms that uh, Cambridge Analytica whistleblower Christopher Wiley uh, right. spoke, uh, you know, revealed to uh, British Parliament about in 2018, uh, you know, explaining what they had done during the U.S. election. And uh, so that's cute. And uh, so that's kind of what, you know, that, that's kind of, there's a couple of stories here. Yeah. Firms keep getting away with this stuff. Yeah. The other story is that the press has proven itself to be almost amnesiac about these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, e- even when New York Times covered this uh, Cambridge Analytica thing involving Palantir in 2018, thanks to Christopher Wiley's whistleblowing. They had uh, apps on Facebook that were given special permission to harvest data, not from just the person who used the app or joined the app, 
but also it would then go into their entire friend network and pull out all of the friends data as well. Things like status updates, likes, in some cases private messages. We would only need to 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 you know touch a couple hundred thousand people to expand into their entire social network, which would then scale us to you know and most of America. And people had no idea that their data was being taken in this way. Yeah. Uh, they, they, uh, well, they, they reported then this 2018 story that, you know, uh, Palantir had said, Oh, oops, here's some documents showing one of their engineers was involved. And oh, okay, well, one of these guys was involved. We'll take care of that. Uh, had they went back and read their own reporting or their own, at least their sort of backwash reporting, uh, two weeks after, t- after the, uh, HB Gary hack, after this story had come out, they could have seen that Palantir used the exact same excuse the first time that they had said, oops, we're not involved. But then oops, it was one employee putting them on leave. Um, and so, there's there's very little point for all of us going to prison over and over again and spending all of our time on this when the the gatekeepers of right. you know the, of the U.S. press just can't even you know we don't even want them to even get the story we don't need them to investigate anything all we need them to do is just pay attention right. and then maintain that attention for a period of longer than three years at a time. I completely concur with that. I want to loop back around and talk about uh, what happened to your mom because, to me, one of the one of the most uh, that the FBI was really clearly they were trying to get at your source and they were willing to cross any line that they could to get to that source. And I think one of the uh, prime examples of that is the fact that they did uh, charge your mother with obstruction of justice because I believe your laptop was at her place of residence. Uh, and what blows my mind is your your original charges were, what, a total of 100 years or so, when the original hacker that actually did the hacking only got 10 years. So it seems to me, when you look at that, that just superficially you can make the argument that they're more concerned with the journalists reporting on what is hacked than they are with the hackers themselves. They clearly don't want this information to get out there. And as far as I'm concerned, this is something that every American should be concerned about because... The fourth estate is no longer the fourth estate. I call it the fourth fixer-upper at this point on, because it is on so many levels. And I feel that uh, the fact that so many gatekeepers in journalism are sort of ignoring this, is it's really bothersome to me. Um, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Uh, so in this instance, what they were trying to do was, rather than protecting a particular source, I was trying to protect uh, activists that I worked with in Bahrain okay. Uh, gotcha. And elsewhere, because these are regimes that, you know, they're fighting for democracy there. They're up against both Bahraini and Saudi Arabia, and they're also up against the U.S. government, which right. we know uh, has it's against these firms in France, the U.S., and England, and Germany that have been found to have provided uh, sophisticated phishing software, just software by which to identify dissidents mm-hmm. uh, in those countries. And the U.S. has been involved in that uh, pretty much every step of the way. And so it was, yeah. uh, I, I, I could not uh, let these laptops. Uh, without, you know, without at least trying, I couldn't just let them, let the FBI get their hands on them. Yeah. And they did get their hands on them eventually. But, uh, so, it, well, one of the things that I was, you know, when I uh, was listed uh, in the filings in the, by the, the DOJ in my court case was uh, they committed this on the government of Bahrain, unquote, uh, which, you know, you would think that if you are the citizen of the United States, yeah. that you are permitted to attack a monarchy, nor did they ever specify what the attacks were. The, the attacks they're talking about involved uh, working with uh, 
Mario Malkajawa, who's from the family in Bahrain that's been uh, sort of uh, spearheading these uh, democratic uprisings. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the, so the DOJ and the FBI have been complicit in a lot of things. But uh, but anyway, so so in this case, they did indict my mother. Uh, they did so. They threatened to indict her about a few days after. Uh, they wow. did that. That's actually pretty typical typical FBI tactic. They yeah. do they uh, indict one's female loved ones in order to get you to either come to them and talk right. or to plea or something. Uh, because I didn't do that, they continued. Uh, and then after they arrested me, they uh, need to uh, to they wanted me to plead to one of the eleven counts of the linking. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I told them I would not plead any linking charge because the precedent established would endanger other journalists and researchers. Uh, right. it was, and uh, so they, they went and had indicted her and uh, she pled a probation. And, uh, you know, I mean, the means for a gag order uh, uh, for when their words and, and the, and the uh, I should note the transcript of the gag order hearing is public. Okay. It has the prosecutor uh, noting that uh, the reason, one of the reasons for the gag order is one, one is that I'm talking to journalists over the phone from prison, uh, including Michael Hastings of the list right. and uh, Glenn Greenwald about these issues. And two is that an article I wrote uh, on Snowden for the Guardian from jail was, quote, critical of the government, unquote, and that the, quote, tone, unquote, was, was quote, uh, problem, problematic, unquote. Wow. Uh, that happened right there in open court. And That's so wild. the the press, in my case, did eventually get a sense of what this was about. It took them a long time, mm -hmm. uh, and it took a lot of help, uh, basically from me, orchestrating this from jail uh, via uh, supporters of mine going to the press and saying, hey, look at this search warrant that Michael Hastings posted a year ago. These are the firms that they're, that they're this is what this is about. Uh, so they, it, it took them a lot of time, and it took them a lot of outside assistance as usual. Yeah. And that's the frightening thing here. Uh because there was so much out there. I mean, again, the search warrant that lists HB Gary, that lists in-game systems, that lists Project PM, all of these things this was actually about. Uh, and not Stratford, incidentally. Stratford was not listed on my search warrant, even though Stratford hacker happened four months prior. This was never about Stratford as such. Uh, and Stratford, incidentally, was, was, that hack was orchestrated by the FBI, as later came out in uh, Jeremy oh, Hammond's trial. Right. But the, these things, uh, they were on BuzzFeed. Michael Hastings, who was at that point, you know, one of the most prominent journalists in the country, uh, in large part due to his uh, Rolling Stone article taking down General McChrystal and forcing his resignation. Yeah. Uh, Michael Hastings had, had had written about this, explained it, summarized it, and posted the entirety of my search warrant on BuzzFeed in April 2012. Nonetheless, not a single journalist of the dozens of journalists from all the major outlets uh, that, you know, uh, would later cover this. Seem to have found that. There's a few exceptions of people who found the stuff on their own. They found, you know, Project PM and, and wrote some right. great articles. Uh, the Nation ran a good one. Uh, so on and so forth. And others, other journalists, those as a new narrative. Uh, but, uh, it, it's extraordinary how much can be hidden in plain sight even when it's not. Is that your dog? Shut up the rooftops. <laughs> it, it is, uh, unfortunately, my dog. That's all right. Uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's extraordinary how, how poorly equipped the press has proven, again, to be not just, you know, not just in sussing out these issues in the first place, which is, which is fine. You know, that's, it's not, it, it we got lucky in coming across these firms to begin with. It was because right. Aaron Barr decided to come after Anonymous and Anonymous fought back is the only reason we found them. And, and it's, it's not just that they can't get all the details right or that they forget things. It's that they do all of these things and that even after a bunch of people went to prison, and uh, one of those persons was a journalist. Yeah. Uh, and even after it became very clear that the FBI was acting very oddly in the situation, 
uh, and the DOJ as well. It still wasn't enough and still hasn't been enough to kind of keep attention on those firms. And yeah. Palantir, not Peter Thiel, even, even, even one that appeared in The Intercept, uh, written by Sam Biddle, who's a, some, somewhat of a fool, uh, a couple years ago, they tend not to mention the team Themis thing. Yeah. Uh, which was a big thing for Palantir, which was a huge thing, was all the press for a month. So there's, there, there is again, there is, there is a, a disconnect between what we're able to suss out and uh, make public and between what the press is able to understand or remember. And that's, and it goes much worse, it goes much deeper. And it's a much more, uh, devastating story than this summary right here. It, it, it gets worse and worse and worse the more you look into it. Right. So my question is, uh, in regards to that, and I don't disagree with what you're saying, how much of that is fear driven? Do you think that a lot of- By these, the part of the, the U.S. government? No, by the, the uh, gatekeepers in these at these various journalist outfits. How many of them are afraid to have to go to court and fight defending somebody like yourself that reports uh, I think t- to, be, to be fearful- to have yeah. fear, first you have to have uh, understanding and knowledge. And if we were at the point where they were at least scared to do so, I'd be a lot happier. Unfortunately, okay. we're not at that point. We're at really? the point where they simply hmm. that these things have significance. Uh, that's that, I'm sure it's not true for everybody. But yeah, characterization. Uh, they'll write about these things uh, if they can get the credit for it. Uh, sometimes even you know sometimes we would pass things along like we did to Bloomberg. Right. And say, here, take this. We're not able to, to get, take this. You know, I did it with the New York Times several times. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adrian Chin, back when he was at Gawker, and we sent these people stuff all the time. And, uh, they just didn't, they have to be spoon fed things and they have to see other journalists explaining these are important before they, they can understand that. Uh, it's just, it's that bad. And mm-hmm. so I think there, there is a degree, I'm sure, of, uh, of fearfulness or anxiety in, in some instances, uh, in the press over these issues. Again, it's it's more uh, often a matter of an inability to think, a lack of leadership, sort of what you might call intellectual leadership within the press, whereby they really need others to explain. They need to see other people covering this and saying, oh, yes, this is a story. This is, this is important uh, before they're willing to cover it. Right. Um, initially, one of the charges that they tried to indict you on, too, had to do with credit card fraud, if I recall. Did that yeah. end up getting dropped? That was large. Uh, so when I copied and pasted this uh, this link from Stratford, which was you know one of the many links that I you know dealt with that dealt with you know information taken from these firms and which we had been researching for a while, mm-hmm. that link in the transcript of those chats uh, went to a file that contained uh, Stratford drivers to its newsletter, including their credit card information, all of oh, that was okay. stored in an unencrypted format. Right. And so as the government's forensics uh, showed, uh, I never opened that file. I never, uh, you know, I posted it into a place full of researchers. Uh, that same link was linked to by others. Uh, I never used any credit card information. I actually wrote uh, several times in a, uh, for instance, in a statement I put out that WikiLeaks retweeted uh, shortly after the hack. Hammond and these others have been using uh, to make donations to the Red Cross and stuff. That was not the purpose here. That it was deleterious to our project. Uh, they didn't have private conversations with me arguing with Jeremy Hammond over this, uh, mm-hmm. which are now public. Uh, it was very clear to them and everyone involved that I had no interest in credit card numbers that I've never, right. you know, it just, it's just, it, uh, so, but they used the aggravated identity theft charge mm-hmm. in, in order to get something they could generate that was a charge involving the underlying investigation that had gone on since coincidentally, right. uh, a few weeks after we first exposed team Themis and DOJ's role in that. But ultimately that the main reason was that uh, even aside from all the other issues and aside from intents and all that, uh, the statute 
uh, aggravated identity theft requires that one steal one's uh, government-issued ID information. And credit card numbers, it turns out, uh, are not government ID uh, mm. yet. So uh, they dropped all of those about two days after we, we uh, did our uh, motion to dismiss. It was a huge uh, blow to the uh, DOJ. And it's, right. it's, it, it, I think it's, it's, it's very clear to anyone, both who follow these things and who uh, understands how the FBI and DOJ will actually operate when they feel like it, right. that they knew, perf- I mean, they knew perfectly well what this statute was. They didn't yeah. just, you know, slap dash one afternoon, like, oh, maybe this will work. They knew perfectly well that they were charging me uh, mm-hmm. falsely with a statute that didn't apply. And they knew perfectly well that they did it uh, in a way when, when I had done nothing wrong, had, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It just, it, it was very clear to everyone concerned. Uh, and then they had, but then they wanted me to plead to something else. Uh, they mm-hmm. said, you know, come up with something else you can plead to. And so we came up with me calling Stratford because uh, Sabu, the FBI informant who was Stratford and uh, Jeremy Hammond were originally planning on dumping the entire Stratford emails, like all four point whatever million of them uh, online. And myself, I had a couple others that argued against that, said send them to WikiLeaks, at least that way they'll be... Uh, you know, this will be done a little bit more properly than that. And I'd asked him, I, I told the hackers, look, let me call Strapper and see if uh, we can arrange for redaction. If there's anything in there that's sensitive that we couldn't think of right. that should not be put out that could get someone hurt, we'll get that taken care of. So I called up Strapper, called up uh, Fred Burton, uh, one of the other CEOs there, mm-hmm. left a message and, and that was the conduct. That was the accessory after the fact. So when the, uh, national security people, you know, go out and say, you know, we're, our chief concern here is people being hurt by these leaks, uh, spit in their face for me because yeah. it's bullshit. It's totally uh, they, bullshit. And it, that's not, it's never been about that, obviously. Uh, I tried to do that and they, and I got an $800,000, uh, restitution fee for it. And that, it, it gets taken out of my, uh, my book proceeds. So that's fucking ridiculous. Um, you know, I think on a certain level, the DOJ has been running amok for a while now. Uh, it seems to me that they are far more interested in protecting uh, the interests of corporate America or, or covering up the dirty secrets of our government as as they relate to the interests of corporate America. Um, they don't seem to care as much about justness um, or defending the Constitution or any of our you know First Amendment rights. And on one level, I do believe that this is related to the uh, increase in our military industrial complex. We've pretty much privatized the entire war operation from um, top to bottom. And uh, these companies, these these private security firms, uh, they have a profit motivation. They don't have a public interest motivation. So do you think this is just the inevitable outcome of that? Certainly. Uh, of course, there was already a profit motive and you had state capture, you know, by these companies, you know, right, Lockheed right. and all that. Yeah. Uh, now, it's, now it's a little bit less... It's more direct, less state capture as such is needed because, uh, you know, when it's outsourced more formally, mm-hmm. uh, then you have them making more decisions, blah, blah. So, uh, there's also a lot more room, especially when we get into information operations, which is my specialty. Uh, you know, including when I say about my specialty in terms of what they do and what we do back. Uh, then you get into this area where it's even more dangerous because now you have companies using persona management, uh, which, uh, short version is, you know, if you've read the New York Times, New York articles last few months about Psy Group and what they were doing uh, in the last election mm-hmm. with these fake avatars, right. uh, it's basically persona management. Of course, New York Times doesn't know what that means, but, uh, maybe next time. Um, <laughs> but when you, when you, when you get, when you have these same companies using information operations like that, they have these capabilities and they're being encouraged to develop these capabilities. They are now in a position to manufacture events. And of course, our press is very event driven. Uh, they have an opportunity to manipulate, uh, you know, 
participants in this process. They have uh, the opportunity to make like the public to a greater extent. And so uh, now you have people who have an ideological cover for themselves who really believe, oh yeah, this, these things need to be done anyway. And they also have a parallel or sort of overlapping uh, profit motive. And they're like, okay, well, we know this stuff has to be done. Let's fool the public again. And, right. uh, you know, that's where this war make money because, because we're right to do it. Uh, this has happened over and over again, but now it's happening more and to an extent that we can't really, uh, assess because it's, it's done so invisibly. These, right. these techniques like persona management, things like Ramos coin, uh, they're, they're very, uh, they're very sophisticated. They involve the assistance of very powerful, uh, you know, corp- corporations, uh, they involve very powerful entities like Apple and Google, right. which both met with, uh, HP uh, Gary over, uh, you know, in TASC over this Ramos coin thing, which is something that, you know, the reason I quit the intercept, uh, after, you know, winning the national magazine award from prison was it started right before I left prison. I wrote my last column for them and I mentioned, uh, Ramos coin again. And I mentioned Apple and Google had both met with these firms about Ramos coin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the editor over there, Roger Hodge, who, uh, used to be at Harper's. Right. Uh, you know, explain, explain these emails that, oh no, see, these guys are just, they're just trying to drum up business or hustling. They're just, they're just trying to, you know, brag. And I'm like, no, Roger, these emails, yeah. which are the same ones where we got, you know, Glenn Greenwald being targeted, your boss. Uh, these emails don't, don't, don't have them saying they're having meetings with Google and Apple. They have them arranging the meetings. We have with the names of the Apple and Google, uh, national security people. Hmm. We have where, we have the place where the meeting occurred. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I shouldn't have had to have that conversation with him. I, I was I was doing four years in prison on this subject. I mean, no journalist should. Uh, the, the editor should be like, okay, let me look at the emails before I That's start right. telling you your business. Yeah. And so it's just it, the relationship was poisoned right then. And then two months after I quit, when they wouldn't run something else up. But it's it's just it's it's not just Roger Hodge on the Intercept. It's it's an interesting story. It's an interesting anecdote in that case because the Inter- Intercept was supposed to be the outlet that was going to do these things properly. But again, going back to 2011 and all the things Glenn Rumo was warned about. Uh, you know, to, to no end. Uh, it's, it's very clear that that was always never going to be, regardless of what one's theory is about how the intercept went wrong, if it's because they're this or that. Uh, I don't have a strong opinion on either of these theories yet, but regardless, uh, it was never going to be an effective, uh, mechanism to address these press issues. Let's talk about CISA for a second. Um, this is what I am going to refer to as a zombie bill because it's been floating around for so many years now. It keeps um, disappearing and coming back again. But it was finally signed into law by Donald Trump um, in November 2018, so recently. Do you think that this bill gives prosecutors too much power? I've not followed it heavily. I'm, I'm aware of it uh, in general. Uh, okay. I would say, given given the given every single case we've had in this country, well, let me put it this way: uh, a few months ago, uh, I think the last four major DOJ prosecutions had all collapsed. Yeah. Uh, the last four, like nationally covered, one, all collapsed because they had been caught hiding evidence and or something of that nature. Uh, there was not a single. Sorry, my, there's a balloon in my house being batted around by a fan now in Valentine's Day. Sorry. That's you never right. know what's going to happen. I was wondering uh, that I've, got to, I've got to get my own shit together before I save the world, I think. <laughs> um, so the, the, the last several, like three or four major DOJ prosecutions had all collapsed because they had been caught hiding evidence or engaging in prosecutorial misconduct. Mm-hmm. And there was not one story in the press like, hey, is this a problem? What does this mean? You, would, you, know, you would think 
that's I mean that's a major that's a major problem. Uh, yeah. What it what it tells us is not that just these three or four cases. Anyway, it was it was it was against the wife of the pulse shooter you know, who was who uh, who was a very limited understanding, and they lied about lied about regarding her uh, cell phone location information. There was the the Bundys or whoever that ranch uh, that fell apart for similar reasons. There was the case against the uh, the J the, the January uh, the. Trump uh, inauguration protesters that collapsed for similar reasons hit a uh, hit exculpatory evidence, mm-hmm. uh, and that's not including my case uh, or Jeremy Hammond's case in which they also held got caught holding uh, exculpatory evidence. Right. Uh, that doesn't just tell us about those cases. It tells us that if you if you look pay attention to the DOJ, you will generally find them breaking the law. Yeah. And you'll also find if you look at what studies have been done about you know prosecutorial misconduct and how it gets uh, punished. Uh, that of the last of several thousand cases uh, that I forgot which university uh, had, had looked at in which prosecutorial misconduct was basically uh, acknowledged by a court at some point because the sentence was vacated or the sentence was changed or otherwise a judge stepped in and said they did something wrong. Uh, of all those cases, uh, I think there were three or four times in which the uh, prosecutor was admonished in some official way. Mm-hmm. And there was one in which a prosecutor actually got prison time, and that was the guy who uh, hid evidence, and a guy did like 30 years for a uh, for a murder he didn't commit in Louisiana, I believe. And that federal prosecutor uh, got a $500 fine mm-hmm. and two weeks in prison that was cut down to like five days. Wow. So there's, we have not given our prosecutors, just like we've given our police, any reason whatsoever not to violate the rights of the defendants and of the citizenry, of the public, to know you know, what, how, what, what these cases involve. And so we should not be giving prosecutors any power. Yeah, uh, the whole DOJ should be shut down. The federal should be sh- shut down until it's reviewed. Just like Trump used to say, like, you know, oh, we got to figure out what's going on with these Muslims before we let any more in. Well, we need to figure out what's going on with the prosecutors before we, before we let them prosecute anymore, anybody else. Yeah. Uh, most, most of the stuff they're doing involves drug cases that don't really matter yeah, or immigration right. cases, you know. Uh, yeah. And so we, we would not be poorly served to shut down the DOJ for, say, a year. While we go through and see who needs to be arrested, who needs to be prosecuted for prosecutorial misconduct, and which FBI agents are, are getting money from which intelligence contractors to do what. Indeed. In fact, I would say one of the worst aspects of the Patriot Act was the creation of DHS, Department of Homeland Security. This is where ICE is located. This is where uh, CISA is now located. It's just increased the uh, surveillance state. Um, it added to to uh, just police operations that already existed in other departments. So it's just one more layer. And I think it's been a disaster for the First Amendment. I just realized my Trump impression sounded like a Southern guy for some reason. I'm going to do that. I meant to be, to be a better. I can't only really, I can't do Trump. Um, sorry, what were you saying? Um, I'm saying that the the uh, Department of Homeland Security should have never been created. That was one of the worst parts of the. Patriot oh yeah, of course, Act. right. You yeah, know, I mean, I yeah, and that's and that's saying something. Obviously, I mean, that's that's yeah. a yeah. I mean, it's a it's a division that has has you know just like with the patriotic itself. You know, they they make these claims and say it's going to be used against against uh, who we de- people we designate as terrorists. And of course, the definition of terrorism is <laughs> up for debate. Yeah, uh, right. And then, of course, within two weeks, they're using it against drug offenders and drug deals. You know, it's, and and of course, they couldn't make that case. Like we have to have these powers to deal with marijuana dealers, and they can't make that case. Right. But once they get those powers, they will absolutely use them, and they will use them even if they don't have the powers. So, I mean, obviously, I don't have a real nuanced 
uh, response to all these things. My response is that these, you know, I'm a militant anarchist and I, I was a militant anarchist before uh, I learned all these things starting in 2011. So I'm not generally in favor of uh, U.S. prosecutors and FBI giving more, be given more tools. Uh, I think that even from the standpoint of a more moderate, you know, U.S. citizen who, who wants to see these things be addressed piecemeal or whatever reformed, uh, I think they should keep in mind what, uh, the, the huge breadth of things that the FBI has been caught doing in, over the last decades that have never really been addressed or punished Yeah. before they start giving them more toys to play with. No, and if, if they can't do that, if the citizenry can't do that, if the press can't do that, and if the legislators can't do that, then groups like Anonymous emerge to do it for them. And that's going to happen over and over again. Uh, and, you know, just like years ago, uh, these groups, these movements will have the support of large numbers of the citizenry because... Uh, outside of the sort of beltway and the uh, morning talk shows, you know, all that, uh, that mentality, that's a rare mentality. That kind of everything is pretty good mentality. The very few people in the real world, uh, don't know what the cops are really like. Don't right. know how judges operate. So, right. I mean, everyone outside of these morning shows that kind of set the tone, uh, are aware of this. And so they're, they're creating, they're creating this, this conflict, not, not me, not, you know, people on this side, uh, Everything that we what we've done and continue to do uh, is made easier by them. It's facilitated by them. They, they open the door to it, and uh, you know there would be no need for people like myself, were there not people like Peter Thiel out there. Yeah, you know it's interesting to me how complacent Americans have become when it comes to their privacy issues, when it comes to First Amendment issues. I was appalled when the Patriot Act was passed. And I remember at that time being equally appalled by the reaction to it by so many Americans because they didn't seem to see it as a problem. You know, it kind of reminds me of that uh, Ben Franklin quote, careful about giving up security to have liberty. You'll end up with neither, which is, I think, very much true. And it's probably the one area I agree with Rand Paul on. Um, but here we are all these years later, and I don't see the attitudes changing within the population. I think they are just as ignorant about what the NSA is doing today as they were 10 years ago, even though the information is out there. When, why did we get to this place with American society where folks are just, oh, they're spying on me on my phone, that's okay, I'm not doing anything wrong kind of an attitude. But I think what people don't realize is, well, it's fine as long as you think you're doing nothing wrong, but who's to say that you aren't? And when do they get to decide when that changes? How do you not see the danger in that? Yeah, I mean, the, the broad answer is there was no reason that society should not go this direction. There was nothing. I mean, it, it, was, it was by luck and, and also by the, the virtues and sacrifices of always small groups of people throughout history that build these institutions that provide a degree of liberty in the first place. Yeah. And uh, absent to them, uh, you know, you're left with uh, the kind of people who now work in journalism in New York. Uh, more specifically, the surveillance issue was, unfortunately, uh, that couching of it back then. I remember it well. I remember reading uh, Thomas Friedman's uh, column yeah. that someone, a friend of mine had uh, been an asshole enough to send me when I was in jail, uh, which I then wrote a Guardian column in response to, uh, about Snowden and about, you know, Thomas Friedman. I said, well, allow me to blow the whistle on, on this. You know, yeah. these whistleblowers are causing a stage blow. And then he goes on and quotes the producer of the wire for like three paragraphs. Like he knows what the fuck he's talking about. Right. Um, but the argument that, you know, oh, you know, we're not doing anything wrong. So why should we report? 
that's not even really the concern. Uh, the average person is not going to fall prey in any meaningful way to uh, the surveillance, aside from the data mining, which is then used to create an output, a specialized propaganda output for the election in 2016. But aside from that, uh, these things are always used against a small number of people, including whistleblowers and activists and uh, competent journalists uh, who are there to protect society uh, from these concentrations of power and these days from concentrations of power over information. Uh, that's what they're used against. And that's how the average person is affected because those, these are the people that, uh, that do the work of assessing and combating and then punishing when necessary, uh, that kind of malfeasance. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter if, if, uh, some hockey mom is not doing anything wrong on her computer. That's right. What matters is that that hockey mom might not want her child to grow up in a society in which uh, several firms led by neo-monarchists like Peter Thiel mm -hmm. uh, now have a degree of control well beyond anyone else in the world right. over uh, what wars her sons are drafted into and uh, you know what laws prescribed and so on and so forth. And so that's something that should have been articulated uh, better back then when the stone came, things came out. Uh, the fact that it wasn't uh, should be unsurprising. Dog, calm down. Come on. <laughs> Come on. She agrees go, go with home. you, Barrett. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Right. Uh, yeah, and so, yeah, it's not surprising. That's, just, that's part and parcel of the, of the greater rots, which is that we don't have in place, uh, in the press at large, the people who can articulate that or, or even understand those are the issues. Mm -hmm. uh, what we have instead is people like Thomas Friedman and Charles Krautheimer, who, thank God, is dead now, uh, who, you know, get to define the conversation despite, you know, you know in science, we determine if a theory or hypothesis has any value to it by whether or not it can predict anything. Yeah. Uh, if someone fails to predict stuff over and over again or predicts things falsely, like Thomas Friedman and Charles Krautheimer did about every U.S. military engagement since 1998, right. or about Putin, or about, you know, if Colin Powell is going to dominate the Bush administration, which is what Thomas Friedman thought for some reason, uh, <laughs> things like that. If they get proven wrong, and then they win Pulitzers for being wrong, for those very columns, right. then we have a problem in assessing and uh and placing uh talents in, in that industry and unfortunately the press and the commentariat sort of the the the, the role of the jurist in this republic right. is not taken seriously it's it's either either these people these editors and publishers and producers either they acknowledge that these are important positions and they have failed to go back and see whether or not the people in those positions they put in there uh, have done these things properly or they don't think it's important uh in which case let's scrap the whole thing uh, there's no defense, uh, to the way that the Washington Post and New York Times have set up, uh, their, their, uh, apparatus for, for yeah. informing the public, for serving as a central nervous system of a vastly complex imperial republic. There's none whatsoever. And so, no, there you go. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, well, we're, you know, Henry Kissinger has a Nobel Peace Prize, so that just, you know, what more is to say after that? <laughs> yeah, well, so do I. Maybe you'll see me bragging about it. <laughs> So, uh, but I mean, honestly, this is the guy that carpet bombed Cambodia. How can you give him a Nobel Peace Prize? Is beyond me. Uh, it's upside down world that we live in. You know, let's talk about what you're talking about right now, which I think is the permanent war economy. You know, we've perpetually been in war now in seven countries for decades. And there are a lot of private companies that have been getting wealthy off of this. A lot of individuals that have been getting wealthy off of this. And now, you know, we're looking at Venezuela where um, you have some of the same players, Elliot Abrams, who is an absolute war criminal. Uh, what he did in Central America is just grotesque. 
you have all the neocons coming on board, and now they're talking about regime regime change in Venezuela, which is a large oil producer. So it's sort of a perfect storm, like it was before Iraq, I think, in many ways. Well, I was going to say a lot of people surrounding WikiLeaks. You know, one of the things that I basically went to prison over because uh, HP gave me strap for email sets for both published at WikiLeaks and blah, blah. Uh, a lot of the people that ended up surrounding Assange and advising him were the people who thought that the Trump administration was going to somehow end that. Uh, mm-hmm. They seriously thought this. It was really extraordinary to come out and see what they had believed about this person and about the people he surrounded himself with, which ultimately included John Bolton. Right. Uh, and so, of course, what's, what happened is they're, they're not getting less of the world empire. They're getting a more privatized version. Exactly. Uh, that also speaks in a way that I guess has successfully deflected uh, the truth about the world empire. There's, there's still people who really believe that tr- Trump has, has, has toned down, uh, you know, activities abroad. And meanwhile, Yemen, you know, right. uh, rages on yeah. and he's trying to, trying to give more and more control to Eric Prince. That's right. Uh, and, and so, you know, so it's, it's, it's only, it's unfortunately, it's a sort of a, uh, a conflict that has caused, you know, I'm not, I'm not opposed to divisions as such divisions are important. And, uh, you know, uh, holding our side to a higher standard is also important if we're supposed to have a superior side. But it is unfortunate that it's it's uh, it's become so much more difficult to focus fire on the enemy and to, uh, you know, clarify these issues. Yeah. Uh, but that's, you know, that's that's the result of having a vague, sort of a vague movement in the first place, a movement that's not really defined uh, carefully by values, mm-hmm. but rather by, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, again, vague, haphazard. Shh, dog, come on, you're a big head hazard dog. Um, um, anyway, so so yeah, so this is this is this is what we have what we have when we don't have articulated standards for a given movement, when we don't have, you know, do's and don'ts that have mm-hmm. been kind of expressed and explained, uh, and when we don't have intellectual honesty uh as the overriding, compelling, you know, sort of foundational value for that movement. So we have this kind of stuff, and we have people going off in different directions which is okay, but going off to directions secretly and working for the various sides of the Imperial party, which is yeah. you know, divided into two, two main parties in this country. Yeah. Yeah. They're, both sides are engaged in the same sort of foreign policy. I want to loop back around and talk about Aaron Barr for a second because of his association with HB Gary. I noticed this past week that he was retweeting Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which kind of, was a little bit of a mind blow. Has he done some sort of flip in direction? What's that about? Uh, so, well, interesting thing about Barr was a few months after the, uh, the incident, which I posted a recording of me and him uh, from after the, right after the HB Gary heck, uh, earlier this afternoon, but a few months after that incident, uh, you know, where we took his emails and we saw what his actual views were, which are expressed in there and they're very national security state, you know, kind of right leaning. Yeah. Um, and we know who he's worked with, kind of people he's worked with. We know what his actual views are. A few months after that, he showed up at Occupy Wall Street the very first day hmm. up in New York. And I, I was up there at the time. Uh, I didn't see him there. I was I, the next day. By the time I got to Occupy Wall Street the next day, the second day of it, he, he'd already left. But him and a guy named Tom Ryan, another conservative um, contractor, had showed up there. They had been noticed and uh, photographed by Gawker. And uh, Barr's hair was dyed blue. And, uh, you know, they asked him, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, we're just checking it out. You know, we're just interested in these views, blah, blah. Hmm. And it turns out what they were actually up there were, for war, were to surveil on it and to forward, uh, mm-hmm. to, to uh, write down their emails and get on a mailing list and get it forwarded to the FBI, which they did. And they actually forwarded the whole thing to uh, Gawker as well. So that, that's why Gawker knows that's what happened. Um, 
So, uh, so when, when, when Aaron Barr, uh, gives off signals to the effect that he is interested in, uh, the left and left wing ideas, uh, it's just, it's a good thing to, it would be good to remember how he spent late 2010, which was digging up information on the children of labor leaders. Uh, it doesn't matter what his views are, if he has any views, uh, if he has any sort of any sophisticated, like fleshed out, articulated views, which I doubt having spoken to him, uh, they are probably not left wing, uh, even if they were, mm-hmm. uh, this is going to be a good point to come to circle back around to, uh, the guy he works with on team themes, uh, Ryan, um, damn, what's his damn last name? Anyway, the fellow at Barrico, yeah. who was like, like in game systems, Powell and HB Gary Federal, uh, yeah. Worked on this team famous thing against left wing groups, against uh, journalists, uh, against uh, labor leaders uh, for U.S. Chamber of Commerce and for Bank of America and for the DOJ and for the Hunt and Williams uh, law firm. Um, and he uh, so he made it in the Democratic Party. He did so despite the fact that he was front and center of this this documented, you know, thoroughly documented, thoroughly reported scandal uh, wow. that the DOJ and Obama did facilitate uh, for because of its sort of corporate uh, leanings. Um, and here he is. He's about to become, he, I spoke the other day to, uh, a local fellow who was a Democratic, I think, a, a county official who was going to run against him and he couldn't get the signatures. And mm. as of, you know, yesterday, he tells me he's dropped out. So just for clarification, Patrick Ryan, um, also ran for Congress in New York CD 19 primary last, uh, last June. And he was absolutely supported by the DCCC. But what you're getting at is this is a guy who works for Barrico and um, he was referenced in the leaked documents. And you could see that he was conversing in regards to plotting against leftist activists who were going after the U.S. Chamber of Commerce as part of the te- uh, Team Themis efforts. But I would add this. He also worked for a company called Data Miner. Uh, now, Data Miner was I brought this up before with uh, in other episodes of my podcast. Data Miner was the is the data mining uh, entity that was partially funded by the CIA venture capital uh, division. And yes, that's, that's a true thing. The CIA, believe it or not, has a venture capital division. Um, but they were working with Twitter, as Twitter has a partial ownership in the company too, um, to track political activists. Now, Twitter has now shut that down and he, they won't allow the federal government or any of the intelligence agencies to access or use data miner, which is good. But I think it also bears mentioning that Philip Raines, who is uh, with Beacon Management, he's a lobbyist. He's also an ex-Clinton staffer. He worked for Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State and also worked on her presidential campaign, um, lobbied for data miner to uh, foreign governments. And you can find those leaked documents on WikiLeaks in the uh, original Clinton dumps, not the Podesta ones. So... The Democratic Party is short version is not going to be the one to protect us from these oh, yeah. people. I agree. They will be a, a Trojan horse, a, a, another vector of attack uh, from these people. And, and the fact that this fellow has, I know there's been one article by Lee Fang, who's very good over at the Intercept, but a year ago uh, on Barrico and on, on Ryan's uh, involvement in Team Themis, what Ryan did in response was claim, oh, those emails came from WikiLeaks. So you can't, you can't trust WikiLeaks. <laughs> of course, those emails didn't come from WikiLeaks. Those emails came from us. Right. Uh, those emails were, you know, I, New York Times was aware of those emails before the hack had even finished. I had told them, uh, the emails were linked to straight from their website, straight from HB Gary's website from the link that uh, Anonymous put up there. They were in the hands of all these journalists. They all, you know, th- there's never been a major leak of any sort in which any 
email has been shown to be manufactured. That's a claim that's all that's often made. Right. Uh, that, oh, we can't. Some of these could be blah blah. Uh, it, it's a claim that's also usually uh, abandoned after a while after it's served its purpose, which Absolutely. is to uh, confuse and obfuscate. Bottom line is the guy is lying about uh, something that is it should not be viably lied about. It should, it should not be viable. It should not be. There should not be more pros than cons to lying about something so demonstrably easy to verify as where those emails came from. Uh, but it has. And so that, again, that tells us that it, we're still in an environment in which, you know, despite all the stuff said about, oh, we have to return to an era of expertise and, and truth and be verified, you know, and, and you know, uh, epistemological knowledge. Uh, nonetheless, the press is not yet ready for prime time. It's not ready to make uh, a lie a less viable thing than the truth. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate. Um, that's a wild story. So he's running as a Democrat. You know, it's the Democratic Party has been enablers of this stuff time and time again. And I think it's pretty clear at this point from the 2016 election that you can see that they hate leftist progressives more than they hate Republicans, I believe, because I think they I share, think that's probably true. Yes. Yeah. They share the same love of foreign policy and corporatism and all of these things that in my opinion, um, stand in the way of having a healthy democracy. Um, and on that note, tell me about your new project, Pursuance Project, because this looks really interesting. Uh, yeah, I will. Uh, before I do, let me just mention, this is somebody that, you know, Berico, we never looked too closely at. Its its role was less well uh, documented in the emails. So unlike in-game systems and HP Gary and Palantir, uh, it's, it's not one that I was ever... But I really followed myself much, but of course now that's about to change. Since, but anyway, so my new project, which uh, uh, sort of planned out while I was in prison and uh, announced shortly after I got out, in 2016, is uh, pers- uh, pursuance. This is a uh, this is a uh, attempt to codify and to think more cohesively implement some of the dynamics that we've seen in the last ten years that have proven to be successful where others have failed uh, in terms of uh, in terms of countering surveillance, in terms of opposing transparency, in terms of uh, creating, uh, you know, consequences right. uh, for powerful institutions that normally don't face consequences. And, uh, you know, it grows out of, you know, the question of how do we create a universal framework whereby we can bring in people of quality mm-hmm. uh, without a centralized directorate that determines who, gets to participate in what, what terms, uh, allow that to be sort of self-organized, uh, allow that to, you know, grow perpetually, uh, and exponentially without being overburdened, uh, without being contaminated, uh, and without being as easily infiltrated as the kind of our very open groups like Occupy Wall Street Anonymous used to be. Right. Uh, and so it's hard to explain exactly how we go about solving the problem, but suffice to say, we've had a number of years to experience the problem and experience, you know, kind of uh, what works with these things and to take some notes and kind of get some ideas of, of, you know, what do you run into? What are the barriers? What are the deficits? And what, what, what promise is there in all of this that we haven't yet realized? And so it's, it's a, it's, I'm always quick to note that we're very early on in the information age and we're also very early on in these kind of movements and these, these emergent phenomenon whereby people have successfully challenged things like SOPA. Mm-hmm. or successfully uh, brought attention and, and at least thwarted some of the aspects of the private intelligence contracting firms uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere and uh, done things like help to implement democracy in Tunisia. We've, we've seen these things. We've seen them yeah. done. We've seen them done very haphazardly by people like me, Yeah. Uh, which should tell you that if we get really confident people who are hardworking involved in this and give them a means to, to do it, 
Uh, give them the means to do it safely and securely in a way where they are uh, able to, with open eyes, uh, decide their own working relationships with others. Right. Uh, that if we implement that, uh, that given what's now more obvious than it was five or six years ago about how uh, much deteriorated our republic is and how much deteriorated the world itself is, uh, we can we can have a movement. We can have a, a sort of exoskeleton around what would otherwise otherwise be a jellyfish mm-hmm. and create an organic sort of civic alternative that can grow and uh, take shape and, uh, you know, move this ball forward and, yeah. and which, you know, it could in 20 years perhaps start strangling these institutions in their crib. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that, again, is the case has been made well enough that we've been able to attract a pretty uh, magnificent board of directors, including Birgitta Jan's daughter, who was an early WikiLeaks volunteer, mm-hmm. uh, member of parliament in Iceland, the Pirate Party, mm-hmm. uh, John Kiriakou, uh, the CIA torture whistleblower, yeah. uh, um, you know, Danley Colvin, formerly head of the uh, Courage Foundation, uh, you know, a number of uh, professors, lawyers, academics, just people who, uh, you know, many times mainstream people, people who right. were not involved necessarily in these things back when we were still more of an outlaw movement, yeah. but who now, given what we can show and what uh, given what's happened, uh, are the kind of people that are representative of this next wave, I think, of individuals who will happily participate in a counter movement, a serious counter movement that's not just, you know, intent on winning elections or trying to win these unwinnable arguments against, you know, 50% of American population that are fascist inherently, mm. but rather want to start building these structures that will be there that can start, uh, uh, implementing reform from the outside while also building a structure that can be there for when that structure is needed for what things go, if things go a certain direction. Right. Uh, it's better to have a cohesive, erudite and values center cyber army than to not have one. That's what my dad always told me. And yeah. so we're building one, uh, you know, in a way that uh, I think we'll get it right this time. We'll get it much better this time. And, uh, you know, we have the expertise and kind of the resources uh, this time around, but we didn't last time. Yeah. And last time we did pretty, we did well enough that the FBI came after me pretty hard. So yeah, they came out, they came after you very hard. It's, it's um, unfortunate. Uh, so what, what, in your opinion, is the best way activists in this environment can protect themselves? Are there certain things that they should be doing security wise? Uh, you know, I don't think people realize the extent to which Google, uh, Facebook, YouTube, all of these companies, invade your privacy on the daily they give data to fbi whatever what things should they be doing other than you know using signal as a, a messaging app etc what what's some of the things that you would recommend uh, a couple of things first of all the eff and Freedom of the press foundation they both have great documentation on their websites uh mm. that go into some of the some of the best practices uh and so they should be getting Anything involving the, the sort of the nuances of these technical issues, they should be getting from them and not from me because okay. I'm not a, my background is, is really in history and, 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 you know, Bonapartism and not in uh, tech. But, uh, the, beyond that, it's very important to be aware of what we know exists, as in what procedures, methodologies, and tools we have already caught them using and what we know about them. So all the stuff that we put up back in 2011, 2012 at the FBI, Listen to my search warrant, the Project PM website, which is now at Google, Google Project PM. It's two words, PM. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll find it. It's wiki.pm. You'll find all the information about, say, persona management. And so they'll be able to determine, uh, you know, when you become an effective activist and you're an effective journalist or you're somehow hitting upon things that are serious 
and you start uh, getting a real sense that you are being uh, the you're becoming, becoming the focus of unusual activity, uh, unusual for people that seen online. Uh, you can get a sense of what that might be, not what it is, but what it might be, because there's still a lot uncertain about it. And they, you know, they can read up on persona management on the page we have there and see the patents from 2009, 2010 that IBM and the military did and see, uh, the firms that were involved in this. Or they can go read the New York Times and New Yorker stories on side group, uh, and just remember that, you know, even though they don't know what persona management is, it still exists and it's yeah. still the same thing you're talking about there. Uh, there, there's a bunch of things like that that they should be familiar with to the extent that they are uh, attempting to engage in real, uh, real civics, uh, because these are these, these are technologies that are becoming. Not, they're not, not just going to get better, or they, they not only have really gotten better in the last ten years since they're being uh, farmed out to all these contracting firms and etc. Uh, they're going to be more widespread. There's there's obviously been the market for these things, the market for this information, the market for infiltrating uh, groups, you know, that oppose the U.S. Chamber of Commerce or whatever. Uh, that market has always existed. And by this time, that market will be more aware of what's on offer. Uh, and so anyone who's just opposing their local, you know, power company or something like that uh, are going to be, will increasingly be subject to technologies that are not only dangerous because they, they strike information, but are all the more dangerous because uh, the press doesn't understand them yet, despite our best efforts. And so that, that's the best advice I can offer is to, is to become aware of those things that some people are still in prison for having exposed. Okay, that's great advice. I um, mean, wanted to give you a moment to plug your book. You have a book coming out called My that? Glorious Defeats, I believe. Yeah, that'll come out uh, February of next year. Uh, My Glorious Defeats. Uh, it's, it's a narrative that accounts of all these things of, of what happens between, say, 2009 and today. Uh, it goes into you know, the research we did into intelligence contracting, it goes into uh, those matters. It, it, it is, there's a great deal of emphasis on the press and on the press's failures, you know, not, right. not just referring to infiltration by intelligence community, but really referring to the day-to-day, the, the, you know, the inefficiencies and the, the lack of uh, real interest in what they're doing that allows the press to become not just a poor watchdog, but sometimes a yeah. vector uh, for these these phenomenon, for these intelligence contracting firms, for the U.S. intelligence and foreign intelligence. Uh, so, so the book is the book. You know, goes into all of these issues. It goes into all of these things that have happened since 2009 or so in the uh, online activist community and the U.S. intelligence communities and all the little spaces in between. Uh, it it also focuses a great deal on the press, and its failures, uh, yeah. its institutional failures, its inefficiencies, and uh, these this this. This kind of thing, the, the, the need for press reform, the need to use crowdsourced research networks of a more sort of, uh, more refined version than the kind of ambiguous, uh, amorphous ones we used to use to suss out these intelligence contracting firms back in the day. Mm-hmm. It goes into things because until we, until we have really, uh, made the case and, and sort of forced the press to acknowledge the case that it has not been a good steward, uh, of the Republic, uh, then we're not going to see that the necessary uh, push for reform. We're not going to see crowdsourced research networks being uh, used voluntarily by outlets as they should be. They should be a standard thing, just like fact checking. Uh, and so until the case is made that you know, look, they've, they've failed here, 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 and they've definitely failed uh, in terms of following up on these companies that ended up because of their failures successfully undermining the U.S. election in 2016, uh, until that case is made and people understand it, understand the implications, we're not going to have the movement we need uh, to fix it.
And until we fix it, it doesn't matter what we expose. It doesn't matter who goes to prison. It doesn't matter who hacks water, leaks what. Uh, so long as these, as this system uh, is unreformed, so long as, as uh, this structure remains as it is, there's no point in, in, in getting the truth out because the truth can only go so far on its own. Indeed. In fact, are you familiar, I wanted to ask you, if you are you familiar with the company Data Miner? I'm not familiar with that particular company, no. Uh, there's okay. there's a bunch of firms that uh, that we know and were involved in that kind of thing early on in data mining and kind of the uses for that. Uh, and those are, you know, those are among the companies and the sort of apparatus is listed at the Project PM website uh, oh, okay. back in the day. But that's because from where I'm, I'm not familiar with, no. It seemed a little bit nefarious to me. Yeah, that's so. That's that's. There's so many of these firms now. Uh, there's there was tons of them that we didn't know about way back then, and they've proliferated yeah. since you know since 2011. And so that's again, that's why the ultimate answer to this has to be not just individual journalists. Uh, it has to be uh, crowdsourced research networks that compile on an ongoing basis this data, uh, allows for these connections to be established, so that no one, everyone's not reinventing the wheel each time they go through them. Uh, that that's the only way to establish a cohesive and ongoing. And, you know, appropriately robust uh, response to what's happening. Uh, that's the only solution. So we've gone through all my questions. Is there anything else that you would like to share? Yes. Uh, if anyone, uh, you know, pursuance is not ready yet. It, the, the apparatus is sort of the framework we're building, uh, you know, is, is still in the works. But in the meantime, anyone who's interested in uh, getting involved in some experimental methods for press reform, for crowdsourced research networks, and some of the other projects that we kind of do on a continual basis, uh, they should go to irc.pursuanceprojects.org. Uh, that's an IRC network we just established. There's a, uh, the main, uh, room there is called Marat, M-A-R-A-T. Uh, and that's where we'll be overseeing some of these, uh, these sort of attempts to re- restart the investigations that, uh, you know, were, I think, successful enough back in 2011 with the FBI took notice. Yeah. And, uh, to try to get a handle on this, on these issues of intelligence contracting, propaganda, data mining, and uh, trying to get the press uh, more involved this time as a participant rather than an obstacle. Indeed. Barrett, are you concerned about ever facing jail time again for your activities? Well, I've already been rearrested in 2017. I was rearrested for four days illegally by the U.S. Marshal Service. For, uh, uh, I gave an interview to Vice, uh, the BOP. I was still under... Uh, you know, BOPs, uh, yeah. reign there for the first few months after my arrest. They claimed, they told me that I had to get, uh, not only get permission for the BOP, but also force Vice to seek their permission as well. Uh. I explained to them that's not the case, that that's quite clearly not what it says in the BOP, uh, program guides. I was very familiar with those guides, having done lots of interviews from prison. Uh, I recorded the conversations with them to show what it was about and made those, uh, put those online by the Purge Foundation. And the next day I was, arrested and then uh, lawyers and them started wondering why has he been arrested yeah and uh there was very there was a little bit of coverage uh went on democracy now talked about it afterwards russia today uh that's about it and so uh that's one of the reasons why i eventually have to leave the u.s is because i don't i can't sit around spending all this time trying to explain to the press mm-hmm. you know what's what's happening and, and why uh it just gets to be it, it detracts too much from from the central work and uh you know, there, there, there's nothing worse than having to be your, to be your own advocate uh, yeah. when, when your press freedoms are at stake. And so, likewise, there's a bomb threat over my work a few months ago here in Dallas that was covered up by the cops and uh, and by the press as well down here. So, uh, it's, just, it's just one thing after another. But, no, I mean, so the question is, am I worried? Uh, sure, I'm always worried. Uh, I mean, and more than that, I'm, I'm fully, you know, it, it is 100%. There, there is no doubt that there will be more uh, bizarre and maybe sometimes mundane uh you know, retribution uh, for this work. 
And uh, so, yeah, having said that, come come work with me at irc.pursuance.project. You know, Barrett, it's really unfortunate that that these things are the case because as Americans, we're raised to believe that we're this shining beacon on the hill, right? That, that America is about liberty, that it's about egalitarianism and all of these things. And we fall short of those ideals time and time again. Um, you know, and I know for me, my grandfather, who uh, was born in Latvia, Riga, Latvia, who lived through uh, Russia invading Latvia, went to Germany, uh, lived through Nazi Germany, got out um, by the Swedish government, married a Swedish girl, lived in Sweden for a few years, came to the United States. You know, and I, I uh, tape recorded a, an interview with my grandfather before he passed. And one of the things that he said was that he was so gravely disappointed when he came to the United States, because what he discovered was a country that was nothing like what he thought it would be, it was nothing like the ideals that they purported to have. And, you know, he re- he references not only the lack of civil liberties, uh, but the racism, you know, and uh, here we are. I feel like uh, we're really falling short in these ideals. And it's been this way for a very long time. So the citizenry is too busy celebrating his freedoms to actually secure those freedoms. So <laughs> it's it's something like it's something like a very beautiful woman who is, is constantly being told that she's smart at like a bar, and so she comes to believe that she's smart as well. Mm. Uh, that's how that's how it is with politicians and the, and the public. You know, they're constantly told you're the freest, bravest public. And the public the public starts to believe that. Yeah. Uh, there's no truth to it whatsoever. The politician just wants to get in their pants. So you know. It's, it's, it's just a situation that, you know, the alternative is to go up and say, you're, you know, many of you are scum. Uh, you have done nothing to secure your liberty. You have backed uh, your government that you supposedly oversee has done untold damage uh, around the world uh, for years and for decades and decades. And you've discussed it very little. It's not even barely come up in your consciousness. Uh, you don't deserve to have the vote. Uh, your government is, is a criminal organization. Uh, and this is well known outside of this country and in certain pockets of it. Uh, but you're not aware of it. Uh, vote for me. So the democratic process is not really, you know, I, I'm not going to run for, for office anytime soon, but uh, as history shows, there are other ways of uh, of addressing these things beyond having to convince a whole bunch of rubes that, uh, that they are true. Mm-hmm. And one, so one way or the other, either the U.S. will fall under increasing, you know, de facto sort of uh, uh, technocratic feudalism, dictatorship. Yeah. Uh, or it will fall under a Bonapartist dictatorship, which is the best you can hope for. Yeah, I don't disagree. Or there will be an actual uh, movement for uh, for um, what we call process democracy, for uh, non-institutional democratic uh, oversight. Uh, that's that's what Pursuance Project is trying to build and kind of flush out and uh, wish us luck. Mm-hmm.